Hey there, today is Monday, November 2nd, 2020. My name is Matt Fury, and you are listening to The Rough Cut. Okay, hello there. Thank you for dropping by and checking out the show. Hey, before we get things going, let me ask you, did you have a chance to join Avid for the Marvel webinar last week? It was a ton of fun. I hope you were able to make it, and if you did, I certainly hope you enjoyed it. It went for about an hour, actually almost an hour and a half, and we had 11 different editors from the Infinity Saga talking about their shared experience cutting the biggest superhero franchise of all time. Amazing stuff to listen to, and for the most part, I got to take the day off and let editor Jeff Ford ask all the questions. Who knows, maybe I can talk him into filling in for me on this podcast sometime. No, my feelings are not hurt in the least that you would love that. I don't blame you. Just so you know, I've gotten a lot of questions about if and when this webinar will be available on demand, and I'm pretty sure it will be, and I will let you know on social media or on the podcast when it's out. In the meantime, I'll remind you that there are multiple Marvel movie podcasts in the back catalog of The Rough Cut. we got Avengers Endgame, Spider-Man Far From Home, Captain Marvel, all really good stuff. Now, before we begin today's show, let me take this opportunity to remind you that this podcast is supported in part by our friends. In fact, they're friends to anybody looking for great music. Of course, I speak lovingly of our mutual friends at Extreme Music. Trusted by creators in the media industry since 1997, Extreme Music offers up production audio from every musical style you could ever want, all easily searchable by pretty much any kind of metadata or metadata. Music created by the top talent in the industry from Shelby Lynn to Timbaland. It almost rhymed. Uh, You can audition and license tracks right there on their website or with a little hand-holding from one of their reps through a live chat or direct from their many offices all over the world. So check out Extreme Music to take your project to the next level. I can't speak to what level it's currently at, but suffice to say, Extreme Music will make it better. All right then. Those of you who are even casual listeners to this podcast know that a special reverence is often reserved for editors who work on documentaries. And that's because in addition to all the usual challenges that an editor faces on any kind of project, documentaries and unscripted in general demand that the editor also function as writer and even kind of detective. Without that script, an editor has to pour over hundreds, sometimes thousands of hours of material, media of all types, in search of that story they're trying to tell. Our special guest today is an editor who knows all about that, Inbal B. Lesner. Inbal is an Emmy and Ace Eddie nominated editor and producer who fell in love with editing at a young age, high school in fact, And not long into that love affair, she realized that documentary filmmaking had a special place in her heart. Thus began a creative journey that ultimately led her to her current project, Seduced, Inside the Nexium Cult, which she co-created with her filmmaking partner, director Cecilia Peck. Coincidentally, Cecilia Peck is the daughter of Hollywood icon Gregory Peck. Just thought I'd throw that in there. For Seduced, Inbal takes on the roles of lead editor, writer, and executive producer. This four-part documentary series, available on Stars follows one young woman's perilous journey through the dark and criminal world of Nexium, the notorious self-help group turned sex-slave cult. And that woman would be India Oxenberg, daughter of actress Catherine Oxenberg, and also executive producer on the series. Perhaps you've heard of Nexium; they've been in the news a lot lately. In fact, last week Nexium cult leader Keith Raniere was sentenced to 120 years in prison. That's right, that happened last week. So, doing the basic math, that tells us that Inbal and Cecilia Peck were creating a documentary in which the story was still evolving as they're telling it, which is kind of like paving a runway while the plane is on final approach. You see, I told you documentary filmmakers were tough. How tough? Well, earlier in her career, Inbal B. Lesnar produced training films for the Israel Defense Forces. 
So clearly the B stands for badass. Here's Inbow. This isn't your first project with Cecilia Pack. You've known her for a little while, but we might as well start right there and just talk about how you got on this project. Yes, Cecilia and I met years ago. I had done kind of my first big feature documentary was about Simon Wiesenthal, the Nazi hunter. And there was a small anecdote in it about Gregory Peck. She says the daughter of Gregory Peck, and we invited her family for the premiere screening of that documentary. And she really recognized the editing and liked my work on it. And at the same, around the same time, her documentary that she did with Barbara Koppel called Shut Up and Sing, which is still in my eyes one of the best ever, because it's about women, politics, and music. And um, I love that film, and we were looking for a project to work on together. And so we worked on Brave Miss World, which was an independent documentary, and did that for six years until it was finally done and shown on Netflix and received a Emmy nomination. And then there was somebody who worked with us who had started targeting Cecilia for recruitment, meaning uh, sending her emails, join this woman's group, and we really should meet Allison Mack, and all these wonderful things are happening, and we'd love for you to come to Albany and see this organization. It was amazing and kind of was really persistent in, with those emails. And, you know, Cecilia wasn't at a point in our life where she was seeking something like that. And she just said, I'm not interested. And it kind of kept going until she said, really, I'm not interested. And about a year later, this woman called Cecilia and said, I have to apologize to you. I only now realize I was in a cult and I was under pressure to recruit. And uh, Cecilia is the one that kind of got that story firsthand of what it was like to be in kind of the center of gravity of this organization in Albany. And then she decided to look into it. She met other women who have been in different levels of this organization. Now we know as a cult, Nexium, um, they all had suffered some the impact and the long-term effects of what we call quote-unquote brainwashing. The series is done through the eyes and the voice and the experience of India Oxenberg. Was there any discussion about having Cecilia be actually a part of this, not just directing it? No. I mean, I feel like her presence as an interviewer, even though we don't use her voice really, or um, we don't refer to her, she's not a character in it, she didn't have her own experience. The women that did have the experience are the center of this film with, of course, India being the main through line, the main spine of the narrative. And she really joined us when the trial was concluded. And then a couple months later, India decided to join our project and kind of had to be reshaped around her. Well, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about how Seduced might be different from projects you've done before, because you've done so many documentaries. In fact, pretty hard to find anything in your IMDb that's not unscripted or documentary. There's a couple. When you're doing something like the Decades series with CNN, where you're covering the 90s, and you're covering a topic that is sort of fixed, it's, it's a retrospective, this, you don't expect anything to evolve while you're working on it. Not some new revelation about something that happened in the 90s while you're working on, on the series. In this case, you're doing something that is in the news, in the moment, is evolving as you're doing it. Did that have any kind of impact on you as you were working on this, where it introduced new elements or you had to go back and change things? 
Well, I just want to correct it. For me, it's always evolving, like the exploration of the archival footage, even if it's in the past and not currently happening. My understanding of it is evolving. My relationship to it is evolving. I totally understand your question, but I just I have a hard time accepting that premise. And for me specifically, as an immigrant and not having lived in the United States during the decades that we have covered in the Decade series, for me, it was all new and a learning process. Like when I did the 90s, specifically the episode about the LA riots and you know civil unrest and race relations, I was not in the United States in that period. I did not live in LA. I was not witness to it. All of it was a learning discovery experience for me. But yes, I understand your question. You know, what was mainly different for me is that I, it's my first series as an executive producer. So I wasn't just in the edit room cutting things coming from the set, I was actually traveling a lot and going on set as much as I could. And so I was a few times at the trial in Brooklyn of Keith Ranieri. I was in the main courtroom hearing testimony that revealed details that were not known before. I was able to stare at Keith Ranieri in the face and see his real-time reaction to having those things revealed in the courtroom. So, yes, things are evolving and moving. I mean, we're covering crimes and things that were mostly done over the last 20 years. So Nexium was in operation from about 98 to 2018. So what was evolving in real time was India's exploration of kind of unpacking what happened to her. She told us on the phone, you know, I'm still trying to, figure out how this happened to my brain. And we just thought that's an amazing through line for a series. That's an amazing place to start an exploration where she wanted, it, it wasn't us, she wanted to go and really confront those places of trauma and really understand the difference, as she says, between what she thought was happening and what was actually happening. And that was that those revelations were unfolding in real time for us as we were cutting. And then we would ask her a question, maybe a question would come up during the editing, like, wait, so you were branded, but what happened when Keith saw the brand? Like, that's not, like those questions would just evolve as we were cutting or what, how did they explain that to you? Or, and then we would ask and we would be able to follow up in follow-up interviews because we filmed it over the course of a few months. And, you know, those revelations informed the, the, the edit, for sure. You know, the question that comes up so much is, who would be sucked in by this? Who would be drawn in by this? Who would fall for all of this? What questions, in your mind, were you trying to answer with the series? And what have you been asked most often from people about the project? I mean... I personally must admit that I, like many others, thought that people that join cults are gullible and eccentric, weird, weak, perhaps. You know, I found the exact opposite. These are all extraordinary young women, all educated, strong, smart. They're capable. Some of them have big networks who was able to recruit a lot of friends and family. They're all extraordinary. That's really the, I think, the main misunderstanding about people in cults is that something's wrong with them. And that tends to 
result in some victim blaming. So I think we realized that we need to turn the mirror to the other side and say, what was so smart, sophisticated about the recruitment and manipulation to get them there? That's the real question that was asked. Why have we as a society let it go on for 20 years? And like, how was it not shut down earlier? And people still, when you look on Twitter and you look at responses both to our show and to other shows about the same topic, they're like, oh, I would be out of there. You mean branding? I would just like wake up, you know, get up and run. You know, it's easier said than done is my response. They were very skillful in identifying some kind of weakness, and we all have our weaknesses. They would only identify one weakness, one thing that you wanted, that you craved, and they would appeal to that very, very skillfully. And once they got their hooks, it would be this long process of indoctrination. And it's easy to say it wouldn't happen to me, but I think our message is that it really can happen to anybody. Well, you had mentioned that not only are you an editor on this project, also executive producer and also writer. And I was just hoping to get a better understanding of what your roles are, what, what your functions are. You know, editing, I think I have a pretty good idea of what an editor does, but certainly in unscripted and documentary, that role of being writer as well, it's kind of a natural fit because you are discovering and writing the story. So just if you wouldn't mind, just give me a, a basic understanding of what you do as a writer, what you do as an executive producer versus editing. Well, Cecilia, my producing partner, who's also the director of the series, and I, we both share the show running and executive producer roles on this series. So that means we run the ship. We hire everybody. So we selected a team. We selected a team with women in all key positions. That was a very conscious decision. We tried to also, on the, in the, on the cruise, on the field cruise, to hire as many women as possible. You know, along the way, we added some amazing males as well, but we've had some many shoot days where it was completely female only from the executive producer and the director to the PAs, and that was magical. It really did create an amazing environment for the interviewees to feel safe and supported, and like it just the vibe was really different. You know, so I definitely had a role in shaping the production in, in that way and who get hired when I brought a lot of people who have worked with me in previous documentary shows and unscripted shows. And as, as a showrunner, we work with the network to decide what is going to be shot and how to frame the story, where to drive the narrative that, as you said, is evolving and changing as we go. I ultimately am responsible for budget responsible for schedule. So really everything. As a writer, you know, I think most of the documentary editors I respect get writer credits on their films. I think it's definitely a trend that I would like to see more and more of. Documentary editors are essentially writers and they should, in most cases, get writer credit. And then I'm a lead editor and I had an amazing team of very brilliant, talented editors working with me. They each had their own episode. The original idea was that I was going to cut episode one by myself and then I'll have an editor working on each of the remaining episodes. But with shooting going 
longer than planned and a lot more intensive than planned that was needed a lot on set. And so I had to have other editors take over episode one. And I just cut whenever, be in between whenever I could and try to kind of lead that process or design and lead that process as much as possible. Were you tempted to, or did you actually edit on location? Just like a scripted thing, just to make sure you got the coverage you needed? I really didn't have that luxury. We don't have that kind of setup of a scripted show. I'm lucky if I get to see like a frame of each file. I mean, it's all so guerrilla filmmaking. We shoot all day. We, you're lucky if you can plug in your phone when it dies. You know, it's just like you're out there really in the field, not just from a nice location. <laughs> and then you do your media downloads at the end of the day and pray to God that there's no missing cards or missing files. So there's the media management at night when usually there's not even like a person dedicated to that. It's so like your co-producer or me doing it in between a million other things. So, I mean, I would watch cuts and if I'm on location, sometimes I would get cuts sent to me from the editors in LA. But no, we were not able to edit. I, would, I have to edit in my brain and, you know, direct the camera people to get another angle or another shot, kind of think on my feet, what is the next shot that I would need. So the series is broken up into four episodes. You mentioned that each editor or teams of editors took a specific episode, but unlike scripted, how did you know what those episodes would be? How would an editor know where their beginning and end was, what they should be focusing on to make sure that they have a cohesive episode that's going to lead naturally into the next one? Well, that was something we talked about with all the editors when we interviewed them for the job. I mean, we needed editors who are team players who will not be rattled when their favorite scene is then plucked and moved to another episode. We all needed to watch each other's episodes and work on it as a four-hour film. These are not self-contained episodes. This is a four-hour journey. And the last episode is even more than an hour. It's like a little feature. It's 80 minutes. So it's a supersized episode. And it was initially supposed to be a fifth episode. So, you know, the basic structure of the series, I feel like we wrote when we pitched the show. That was clear to us that we wanted to go through a chronological exploration of what it's like to get in, sucked in this deep into a cult. So we knew the first episode would be what we call now hooked, meaning the seduction, the lure of the group, how you get kind of targeted and signed on to your very for first classes. What is the positive appeal, the positive takeaway, and kind of like the honeymoon period. And with two, which we call indoctrinated, is getting more into what was actually being taught in the classes, the gradual process of indoctrination, how they were able to shift your thinking and really rewire your brain the deeper you went into the curriculum that the group was offering and to these specialized programs, especially the gender-based programs. There was a woman studies program and there was male group and there was one where they came together to supposedly understand better each other. And it was like thinly veiled misogyny taught through all of that in the guise of feminism and the guise of female empowerment was really awful subjugation of women 
And so we really wanted to understand how a young woman gets into that class and kind of goes through that process to accepting being a member of a slave master group. And then with episode three, we really go into the heart of darkness. We call it enslaved. And that's when we really get into what was it like in that Albany Center where the leadership of the cult lived and the abuse that was happening at that core master-slave sorority, how bad it got, the sex crimes that were happening in the group. And then with four, which we initially envisioned as actually two episodes, we call it exposed, but not just how the cult was finally dismantled and brought to justice, but also follow the healing process of the women. Like, what does it take to heal from an experience like that and move forward with your life? And I think that the structure was there. We played around with featuring the trial throughout, and then we landed on just building up to it and taking a more chronological approach. So things were moving and shifting all along, but I think the basic structure was there from the beginning and that the editors knew what they were taking on. So documentaries, editors that work on those types of projects get a lot of reverence, a lot of praise from scripted feature editors because they get it. They understand how hard that must be to find a story, not just cut a story. Knowing all that footage you had to work with, all that material you had to work with, all the material you had to create in support of it, how did you organize that? Because as we talk about so often in these interviews, the organization is critical in the success of these kind of projects. Yeah, we had superstar assistant editors. The first one, Wamai, was, you know, really the master of organization. And I like to have the footage. It can be the same master clip living in five different bins, as long as it's intuitively searchable that way. So, like, we would have the dailies by shoot date, but then we would also have them by character. And then we also have them maybe by location. And then we'll start breaking them by theme. And so you could find the same scene in several different places because different ideas might come up as you're cutting and trying to write these episodes where you might want to try to go to this character or you might think about the theme. It's just like it has to be really intuitive with how to help editors find stuff. We're collecting archival as we go. We're downloading images. We're getting court exhibits that were maybe shown in the trial, ingested. There are interviews. There are interviews that have to be concealed. There were some editors in the beginning that we didn't even... We had some of the footage placed on a certain workspace. And then we wouldn't give them access to that workspace because like, we're unsure. Are they staying? Are they going to be trusted? So... There were women that we were protecting their identity. There are two women in the in the series that are concealed. Their identity is concealed. So we had to take precaution in, you know, definitely that their footage not going into the wrong hands. There were a lot of different considerations on how to organize this. So it had to be a collaboration between myself and the lead AE with input from then the story department once they were hired on how to organize and reorganize constantly this footage. So did you transcribe everything or did you use things like phrase find to find all this stuff? Because these documentaries with all these interviews, it's just mountains and mountains of quotes to find. Well, I told you for years, like I 
I could probably sell scripting for a living if that's if we're, we're looking for somebody. If you... <laughs> I mean, I just don't know. I don't remember how I used, I mean, I remember how I used to do it before. We had those binders and printouts and we did time code. And then we have like, we start developing a system where like a paragraph is about a minute and a half. Or, like every line is about 10 seconds. You know, you would try to like guess, but now you don't have to guess. You just have this amazing tool where you can search for a word or part of a word or, you know, and I've seen you demonstrating it so skillfully, but <laughs> I would never like start a project like this unless it was with Evan and Scripting. Scripting is a documentary editor, I think best friend. So for example, in my series, we have multiple experts, you know, maybe 10. And there's a cult experts and there's a prosecutor and the defense attorney. And so sometimes you just try to hone in on a theme, on an idea. And so you're not sure that you're looking for this idea in this particular transcript. You know that you want anybody that's talking about calorie deprivation, just for example. So I would look for the word calorie across all transcripts. So yes, all interviews are transcribed. And some of the intense dialogue scenes, or even some of the verite we transcribe, because sometimes having the dialogue, you know, the actual dialogue that was said in a two-hour, three-hour interaction really helps me cut it down to what's the one-minute essence of it. I mean, I, I just think it would take us... I don't know, twice or more as long if we didn't have that tool. So yes, we transcribe as much as we can. So as you're going through the process of building these stories, building these episodes, you know, I've talked to some people that their approach, especially in scripted, it's a reductive process. They put an assembly together that just has everything and they go and pull things out. And it seems to me like in what you're working on, it's more of an additive. Like you get to start and build and find that theme but something common amongst all these documentaries is you're missing some connective tissue. Like you have the story there, but you need to create something to stitch things together. And a lot of times that ends up being animation. And that's true here as well. You have animated elements to help recreate the story or connect pieces together. Considering the subject matter, you have to be kind of delicate about that. Like you don't want the animation to come off as kind of funny or goofy, which it could easily do. And I thought you did a really delicate job of that. And I really like the way you, you went about doing it in that it was kind of painterly and kind of... Um, it's gorgeous. It's artful. Artful. It's That's a so great word. Deep. It's so deep. I mean, it's, I think it's a masterful work of art by Elise Kelly. And, you know, we're documentary filmmakers, but we're also documentary buffs. So India, who worked with us as a subject, she kind of fell in love in the process and she started binging on documentaries on the weekends with us. And so this one weekend she saw Miss Americana when they dropped a new Taylor Swift documentary. And I think that Cecilia watched it and I was like, okay, everybody's watching it. I guess I have to watch it too. And so we all watched it and we're like into it for a minute. And there's a beautiful sequence where Taylor Swift talks about this court proceeding. Somebody sued her, she had to sue them back for a dollar. There's a, story point, um, the scene that they do, and they couldn't apparently film or take photos inside that courtroom. And so they have these gorgeous sketches, really, a little bit moving sketches, if I remember correctly. And it's really just a few seconds, if I remember correctly, in that film, but something about it kind of really captured my attention. And at the time, we were really looking into how to bring the courtrooms events to life. And so I specifically, I think, gravitated towards that. And so I contacted the producer of that film, of a Miss Americana, whom I worked with, 
on another project and she connected me to Elise Kelly, the animator. And some of the most horrific experiences of India and others are described using these illustrations and animations. You know, even the most grotesque moments of, you know, sexual exploitation could have easily looked like porn, like animated porn, but instead they're just beautiful manifestation of the emotional trauma as opposed to just what's happening visually. You touched on something else about reductive and additive that I think is an interesting point here. And I think I used to, as a younger documentary editor, work in a reductive process more. Like I would build fat, I would fall in love with the footage, I would make like this four-hour assemblies for what should have been a 90-minute film and and then chisel at it slowly to like find the, the gold in that pile. And I think it's both maturity as an artist and trusting your instincts, but also like just the constraints of time and schedule uh, and money that just force you to really say, okay, I really don't have time to cut these 20 scenes that I'm pretty sure are going to end up on the cutting room floor. And we did with some of them. And we, we did cut a lot that you never, never saw. It's, it's never going to see the light of day. And we spent weeks and weeks on that. And that's just part of the process. But you have to kind of keep centering yourself, especially when you also wear the producer hat and be like, no, wait, this is a nice scene, but it's not what the series is about. And it's not helping our main through line. And more look at it as like, okay, these are the pivotal moments. I think the older I get and the less time I have to do what I need to do is I, I kind of have to figure out a way to work in an additive way and really find the heart of the story without kind of getting seduced and distracted by all these beautiful other moments and scenes that are just not going to help the story. So you gave us a great amount of detail and background on the visuals. Obviously, sound plays a huge part in this as well, and the composition and the score. You know, you worked with a notoriously difficult composer on this one. <laughs> Tell me about that experience and how you were able to find this person. Um, Daniel Lesnar is my husband for many, many years. You know, he's just a superb musician, and I think Cecilia would not mind me saying, because I heard her just saying it when we gathered for the premiere, that she was intimidated for many years to like ask him to ever compose for her because he's a product of the Juilliard School of Music. He's just, you know, is a concert pianist, is a super talented classical musician. I grew up playing music, so I, I was an amateur musician all my life. I bring that to my editing, but what he does is on another level. And she knew she wanted the score to be electronic. I mean, luckily with the pandemic, that's all we could produce at that point because you couldn't really put musicians in a room. But she did have a very clear vision for the music. I mostly, for the sake of preserving our <laughs> domestic piece and um, my relationship with Cecilia, I kind of actually stepped back from the music process for the most part. So they were able to find a musical landscape, of, you know, a sound that they both really liked. If you really listen to it, and on the mix it was beautiful, and then on our TV it sounds like, of course, my husband complains. It's, it's The music is not loud enough. They always, the composers never like how the mix eventually sound or whatever they apply, whatever limiters they apply to it in the process of broadcast. 
it does kill it a little bit. By and large, your career has been made up of documentary and unscripted. So I guess the first thing I would ask you is what is it about that style of filmmaking, storytelling that appeals to you so much? You know, I was lucky to be introduced to filmmaking in high school. I went to this filmmaking program in an arts high school in Israel where I was born and raised. And I just vividly remember my first editing class. And our editing teacher was, did come from documentary and she showed us this Israeli documentary, music documentary. It's just a beautiful film about this sort of known, well-known Israeli music artist that's traveling the country. And they just stop in different little towns and just do impromptu concert for the local people. So they stop in this one. She showed us this one scene that I just remember very clearly. And they stop and they play this song. And you see them playing and you see the people reacting and kind of dancing. And you see the main vocalist and the drummer and the guitar player. And then she stops the cassette. It was probably VHS at the time. And she says... You know, how many cameras do you think they had? And so people are like, three, four, you know, and I, I'm like running all the shots in my head. And she says it was one camera. And it just like blew my mind. I mean, I'm such a nerd, but it just, I geeked out on that so badly. I just like, I couldn't believe they were able to construct this rich scene that played in real time with one song, continuous, with all these different perspectives and people reacting to the music with one camera. You know, I think that really sparked my first love of editing and particularly documentary editing and, you know, what you have to do to tell a real story with real impact about real people and bring that to the screen. So my first influences were, even though I, I studied and made uh, narrative films, some of my most influential teachers, I think, were documentary filmmakers. And then when I went to NYU, that was kind of the same. You know, I gravitate towards the magic of writing something in the editing. It's kind of appeals to my, I don't know, I, you know, I did math and physics majors just in case this filmmaking thing doesn't work out. My parents said, you know, keep the AP equivalent of math and physics, kind of accelerated math and physics, just in case. So my brain is logical that way. And I like the puzzle, putting the puzzle pieces together and constructing something that tells a story. And then as I started working and saw that some of these stories can really make an impact, a social impact, a personal impact, can actually change people's lives or thinking, I just kind of fell in love with the activism part of it too. It's clear that the work that you're doing is meant to have an impact, to make a change, to affect change. And that's really powerful stuff. And I, I think you did a, a fantastic job. The only thing I'm left wondering is, how is it for you to work for yourself? <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty hard on myself. I don't let myself go to sleep when I should go to sleep. <laughs> I don't let myself off easy. Um, it's, it's, a, it's really hard wearing those two hats, I got to say, because as an editor, you have to be in the groove you got to kind of clear all distractions. And I, we had an amazing post to Sandra Sotska without even telling me. She would send emails to the entire team saying, and is trying to edit, do not interrupt. Do not send an email, do not send a text. She knew that if there was something on the production side that, I, that needed my attention, 
I would immediately turn towards it and then lose my focus, lose my groove on the edit. So she would sometimes operate as the gatekeeper and kind of try to block all interruptions so that I could keep my focus and cut. Like once you get into that sweet spot when you're editing and things are really happening, it's hard to kind of take a network call and then go back to it. So it did teach me a lot about juggling that. But what happened is that I would do mostly my producing tasks during the day. And then like at night when the phone calls slow down, when the text stopped pinging, when, when the emails stopped coming in, that's when I would like dive in and do my picture lock fun cuts. So it was brutal on me physically, but it's when I could really have the kind of quiet to do that. I don't know if I answered your question, but that's, that's what I have to say. You answered my question. You answered a lot of questions and you made a, a really amazing series. And, you know, if for some reason this whole editing thing doesn't work out, you can always be a script sync <laughs> demo person or something. I know. I would love to. <laughs> she would be good at that. But she's an awesome editor, writer, and producer, so I think she's going to stick with that. Seduced Inside the Nexium Cult is streaming now on Stars. Now, if you don't have Stars, I suggest you sign up for a free one-week trial so you can see this fascinating and finely crafted series. Our thanks to Inbao for joining us on The Rough Cut to talk about her series and her career. A career that includes a lot of really great work and cool projects, so I encourage you to check out her IMDb page so you can look into some of these things. And as long as you're looking into that, how about you look into the latest version of Avid Media Composer? It's getting better all the time, and it's pretty damn good to begin with. So sign up for a subscription and get cracking on making a great documentary yourself. Still so many stories out there to be told. Okay, should be an interesting week ahead. Who knows what the world will look like the next time we get back together for another podcast. But until we do, this is your grateful host, Matt Fury, thanking you for joining me right here on The Rough Guy.